you'd like to open your Bibles, I'm going to read Revelation 4 and 5. It's on page 869. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. be here amongst us uh, and if you're regular you may be the people who welcome me. Um, I normally uh, have the privilege and opportunity of uh, being part of our Sunday services and particularly in the morning uh, and I don't always get to uh, Saturday and so it's great to be here amongst you this evening. Uh, if you had Revelation 4 open in front of you and you closed it, you know, reopen it, uh, it'd be great to ha- have that in front of you. If you're the note-taking kind of person, have them ready as well. Uh, But most importantly, let's pray that God might speak clearly to us. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is powerful and uh, is able to judge uh, the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We thank you that it is living and active and it uh, exposes uh, where we fail to understand you uh, and exposes the sin in our lives. Uh, Father, we pray now as we come to your word that uh, we would not sit in judgment over it, but rather allow it to judge us and change us. Uh, Father, at the same time, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you that uh, in your word there is hope and life and comfort. Uh, And Father, for those of us who come tonight needing those things, uh, we pray that by your spirit we'd receive them, uh, that we would be able to delight and taste and see the very goodness of your word. Uh, We pray now that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then, uh, there are campaigners from the UNHCR who set themselves up at the front of our church, and perhaps you've seen them on on weeks you've come through. Uh, I'm really glad to have them there. Uh, Chatting to them, I became much more aware of what they did to help refugees and uh, ended up deciding to support them. Uh, But lots walk past, and I understand that because... There are plenty of other causes and people trying to stop and ask me for money that I walk straight past and don't stop for. Uh, See, there there are so many worthy causes that it can be hard to decide, can't it? Which one will you support? Who are you going to give your value, your your hard-earned money to? Perhaps when you put your budget together uh, and you've decided just how much you want to give away, you've still struggled, okay, I want to give 15% away, but you've still got to go, which one? There there are so many good causes, so many things that are worthy. Uh, Who's going to receive it? And we make value judgments like that with our cash all the time. You know, is, is it worth paying the little bit extra for the good quality meat and veggies or will you just get the kind of no-name brand when it comes to the bickies? You know, but what about glory? What about honour? What about power? You know, have you thought through who you hand them over to? 
Who do you give yours to? Uh, Does the boss always manage to get the glory from you? Is life all about increasing your family's honour and the the esteem they get, uh, or even perhaps building your own? Revelation 4 and 5 is a beautiful picture. Uh, It's a picture Rachel just read to us. It's a picture and a clear vision of the one who is worthy of every ounce of glory and honour power we have to give. As someone said, if knowing God is worth anything, it's worth everything. So John writes to people uh, who are in strife. If you haven't been with us for uh, our time looking at Revelation to give you a backdrop, as Christians, uh, in their time, they'd stepped out of mainstream culture, which is pretty much like today. But in those days, the emperor demanded worship like a god uh, and was willing to persecute to achieve that. And then if you add a little bit more pressure on, if you happen to be a Christian in those times coming from a Jewish background, uh, you were particularly despised by your home culture uh, and hated by your family, pressured to return. And then inside the church, not surprisingly, it built up that there was a a kind of pressure to compromise. You know, just cave in on a few little areas, surely it'll be all right. Let's just fit in with the culture a bit more. So the, the believers in strife, And you might expect with those constant calls, uh, if you're with us as we looked at chapter 2 and 3, to constant call conquer, you know, to the one who conquers, keep going, make sure you conquer, that they may just have been wondering a little about whether it was worth following Christ. You know, what really is God worth? What is he? And rather than send a letter to these people of commiseration, yes, I'm sorry you're doing it so tough, or, or a letter that joined him whinging about how tough times were, you know, isn't it awful what the emperor's willing, you know, And rather than sending a letter of pity about how things are for them, what they get is a vision to expand their view of God. See, God knows that when we are struggling in our circumstances and our faith, what helps us most of all is to have a clearer and bigger vision and a bigger understanding of him and exactly what he is worth. And so a door is opened to heaven in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Access is given to what's normally an invisible reality. It's kind of like the curtain's taken away and we get to peer into what is always going on, but we never notice. Uh, The the sense of being opened there is uh, a a permanent opening. So what we're being given a glimpse of into that throne room of heaven is as it is even now. It's still open. That vision is there for us to see. And and for people who are um, struggling to hold on or for people who are, I suppose, wrestling through what we're willing to give to God, it's a beautiful picture. Uh, two things I want us to make sure we clearly pick up because uh, they're pretty clear there in Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, we see clearly God who is worthy because he rules creation and we see Christ who is worthy because he's the victorious saviour. Uh, let, let's look first of all in chapter 4, uh, the God who is worthy because he rules creation. The, the door is open in one. John sees the majesty of God in creation. And as we walk through it in verse 2, the spirit takes him up uh, and he sees the one who is enthroned, and we're given this description of majesty, but it's not about physical features, it's not, you know, has he got a beard or not. No, no, it's, it's the precious stones we see around him in verse 3. They're, they're pictures of his wealth, and they're pictures of his creativity. And there's a rainbow encircling him. It's imagery of faithfulness. That's what the rainbow is meant to symbolize. Um, uh, after the flood <laughs> in Genesis 9, God gave the rainbow as a sign, a promise a reminder to himself not to destroy the earth again by flood. That is, 
to not reverse creation and turn it back to the chaos of the waters. That if you remember the start of Genesis 1, everything was watery, it was chaotic. No, it's a promise. I'm not going to turn it back to there. I've got something better. Uh, In verse 4, we we then get introduced to his heavenly host, the people who surround him. Uh, There are 24 elders uh, representing 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That is, the 24 is the complete gathering of God's people, those from before Jesus turned up on earth and those after. And they even have a share, most remarkably, in ruling with him. They are robed in white, they are enthroned, they are crowned with him. It's the promise, you know, if you overcome, this is what's there for you. And they sit on thrones over the sea of glass or sea of crystal. Uh, Again, sea, waters, it's the place of chaos. Uh, Later in Revelation 13, when we get there, it's the home of evil. Uh, In the final chapters of uh, Revelation, if you keep reading on and on and on, it becomes the place of punishment for the wicked. But God is enthroned even above that. Even above the chaos and even above the evil, he rules over. And gathered there around him is the glory of what he has made, the glory of creation. Um, You'll notice there were four living creatures covered in eyes. Uh, That is, they've got insight. They see all. Nothing escapes them. Uh, And in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third has a face of a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. We've got nobility and strength and wisdom and speed represented. We've got, uh, I suppose, the very best of the wild animals and the domesticated animals and birds and humanity. That is, the glory of creation, the very best of it, has gathered around God. And what do they do? They don't delight in how wonderful they are, but rather they cry out in in praise to him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. See, the very best of creation, when it gathers in the presence of God, realises that he is so much greater. He is the one who is holy. He's the one who is set apart and different. He is the one who is eternal. That's what they praise him for. He was and is and is to come. See, nothing in creation lasts. Uh, You'll notice even Tupperware only has a lifetime guarantee. Uh, These living creatures see God and they see him clearly and therefore they're led to praise In verse 10, that reminds the elders who who were there present of the truth of God. And what do they do? They they pick up their crowns and they throw them down. Yes, they get to share in this rule, but they realize they can't take anything from that rule. And in verse 11, they cry out, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God is the maker and ruler over all. And that when you know that, when you realise that, when you see it, it requires a response, uh, the response of praise, of giving him all the glory, honour and power as due. See, we're used to uh, measuring people's worth uh, by what they own. Apparently, Parisians uh, size up the success of others by how many square metres they have in their apartments. You know, extra square metre. Sydney siders, I don't think, are a whole lot different. You know, even people who own places here are consistently checking its value and just kind of seeing where the market's moved and, you know, just in case they want to sell and they want to know where they stand. And, and, you know, and we meet people and we, you know, meet them for the first time and once we know the suburb they live in, suddenly we've worked out, how much honour do I have to give you? Excellent, I know. Uh, you know, we're, we're perpetually doing it. It's ingrained in us. 
to evaluate someone by, by what parts of creation they can lay claim to as theirs. And this vision makes a mockery of it all, doesn't it? Like, do it on that scale, uh, the Holy One, worthy of glory, honour and power, because it's all his. Every bit of it, every flat in Paris, every house in Sydney, it's all, you know, your most treasured possession, your favourite local attraction, they are all there, they all exist because of his pleasure and for him. He is the maker and ruler of all, and to grasp that demands a response that we've got to give him his worth because it's all his. You can't have a true knowledge of God that does not lead to praise. Uh, some have put it that true theology is always doxology. Uh, if you don't like Latin and jargon words, let me say, that is, a true knowledge of God is to praise God. And Calvin put it, the knowledge of God doesn't rest in cold speculation, but it carries with it the honouring of him. You know, to, to glimpse heaven cannot leave you indifferent and cold. Um, I chatted with a guy earlier this week, uh, loved the guy, uh, and he quite liked discussions about God. Uh, he found them stimulating. Uh, he said, though, provided, of course, no one was forcing their beliefs on others, uh, by which was him saying to me, don't force your belief on me. Uh, you know, and I can't help but think of this, uh, this nice guy that he'd sadly never really caught a true glimpse of God. Because if he understood God at all, if he had a real knowledge of God, it must lead him to praise. You, you can't really know and glimpse what God is like and keep chatting about him uh, in the same way that you kind of evaluate a dinner out and the quality of the restaurant you went to. Okay? If knowing God, uh, creator, ruler, is worth anything, it is worth everything. All glory, all honour, all power. They're his. But that's not the only vision John has. John's given a second kind of insight as this door lies open. Uh, another vision of worth, the worthiness of Christ, the victorious Saviour. Um, first, though, when we get into chapter 5, there's this moment of tension. So you, you notice there was this endless songs of praise, kind of on permanent repeat, going over and over again, praising God. But at the start of chapter 5, it's broken. There's this scroll seen in the right hand of the one enthroned. Uh, the scroll is there telling the future of the world. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 2, in Zechariah 5, the scroll contains words for the world of lament and woe and judgment because it's justice coming on wickedness. But without that kind of judgment, the glory of restoration can never exist. And so a search party goes out uh, to try and find someone worthy to open the scroll, to release the future justice and judgment so that something better can come. Someone able to bring both judgment and salvation. And they go to the ends of the earth and nothing. And so in verse 4 there is the remarkable. Uh, tears in heaven. You know, we're so used to hearing of heaven as the place without tears and sadness. But the possibility of sin Escaping justice permanently is cause for tears, isn't it? If you've been wronged against, you know that. You know you want justice. And it's a grievous thing not to have it. Yeah, and without, without it happening, without someone opening up the scrolls, without someone bringing real justice, then the sadness is this world will be as good as it gets. Yeah, and he cries because there is no one found worthy, no one able to deal with this. But not for long, thankfully. 
uh, the elders manage to give him some hope. Uh, they point over in verse uh, 5 the, the subversive power of Christ, you know, the victorious saviour. So he's the lion of Judah in verse 5, this hugely powerful figure who turns out to be in verse 6 a slain lamb. You know, here is the one able to bring about judgment and glory because he is the sacrificed lamb of God. But he's not weak. Don't, you know, the fact that he's a slain lamb is not a, a picture of weakness. Um, the horns he's got on them... I, you know, don't try and go home and draw a little slain lamb with seven horns. Um, I don't think it's particularly helpful to. Uh, now, the, the horns, though, are, are symbolic of his perfect power. The horn is the symbol of power. He's seven of them, the right amount, the complete amount. Yeah, and the elders recognise that in him, this line of Judah, this slain lamb, he can do what no one else in the heavens and earth can do. Yeah, and so something genuinely new occurs. Uh, they sing a new song in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. The truth is again declared about Jesus. He has brought people back. He didn't die purposelessly, but he died that he might recreate people. Uh, from, from every tribe and tongue and nation, he, he's improving the creation that was fallen. And so this bigger chorus builds up. It gets more and more exciting there. Verse 11, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. You notice there's more things that he's worthy of. He's achieved something great. There's more excitement in heaven. Again, they follow Calvin's principle that the knowledge of God doesn't rest in cold speculation but carries with it the honouring of him. The throne room of heaven glimpses just how great Jesus is. He is the victorious saviour. And that's the very offensive grace that we see in their response. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story of a woman who came to his church. Uh, She'd never um, really heard grace before. That is, she'd never really heard that you could be saved by Christ's work alone. Uh, Had never been taught to her clearly. She'd always thought that she'd be saved pretty much by being good enough. As long as she'd kind of be better than mostly bad, she'd be right. Uh, She said to Keller that grace was actually scarier. Uh, She explained, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I'd I'd be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. Now, she has grasped grace. She has really grasped the throne room of heaven and what they are singing about. You know, power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour, glory, praise. They're not for us, they're for Jesus. They're all his because it's by grace he deserves them all. And we can't kind of claim we need a certain quality of life at that point. It's all his. Because he bought people uh, of his very own, with his own blood, uh, to twist that words, woman's a little, you know, there is nothing that we should not give him. And if knowing God the Creator and Saviour is worth anything, it is worth everything. Uh, and two things I want us to hold on to from that, two things it might mean for us. First, it means we must give him his worth when we gather together. We must give him his worth when we gather together. Uh, the, the vision of Revelation 4 and 5 is our constant spiritual reality, if you're a Christian. So, um, 
Yeah, without spoiling the end of Revelation too much, um, the rest of Revelation plays out with these kind of ongoing cycles of tyranny and chaos and suffering that the experience we have now here on earth. Uh, before you get to some final chapters where evil is completely done away with and you get the new heavens and the new earth, a whole new creation. But the open door to the heavenly throne room is this, this picture in 4 and 5 is the, the reality now that we often don't see. It's veiled to us. Now this is the symbolic representation of here and now. The Father does rule his creation. The victorious Saviour has already conquered. Yeah? And both in the Spirit are being given constant praise in the throne rooms of heaven even now. And if you are a Christian here tonight, you are spiritually caught up in that. So Ephesians 2, 7 talks about how we are spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Not yet bodily, but, but spiritually. We are there gathered in God's presence. Uh, symbolically in this picture, we're represented by, by those 24 elders. And, and we spiritually engage in giving God his worth all the time. And one day we look forward to doing it physically. And in the meantime, uh, I suppose what we try and do is reflect that spiritual reality whenever we get together. You know, so, so true church is that heavenly gathering we can't see, but we're doing our best to express it here. And so we must worship him. We must center when we gather around, we must center it upon him. It means that this, this public corporate worship really matters. You know, our time of coming together to sing God's praise, to sit under his word and listen to him, to, to pray and encourage each other, it really matters. You know, Paul Barnett helpfully says, Worship is not primarily aesthetic or emotional, but the expression of agreement by people of God about the truth of God. So it's not primarily aesthetic or emotional, but what it is is the expression of agreement by the people of God about the truth of God. Why is that helpful? Let me tell you why I think it's helpful. Um, since it isn't primarily, prim, primarily aesthetic, um, it's all right if our building is not perfect. It's actually okay if the musicians you know, don't quite nail it. It's all right if the prayers we pray are a bit clunky. And since it's not primarily emotional, I can still worship him even when I'm feeling distant. Even when I'm feeling low, if I bother to turn up, you know, I can still do it because it's not primarily emotional. What is essential, though, is that everything we do, all forms, the songs, the words, the actions we do, we express the truth about God, which will lead to him being glorified and given glory and honour and power. Uh, I know there's a move these days for, for church to be more missional. <laughs> I love when Christians come up with words that no one else knows what they mean. Uh, if, if it, oh, I don't even know if I truly understand it, but if it simply means to better engage our community with the truth of Jesus, then that's great. That's fantastic. But if it diminishes in any way the importance of gathering around God, present in his spirit and word, to focus on just being part of the ordinary community, I'm a little concerned. Uh, someone I read uh, suggested that it, it wouldn't matter whether people made it to a church meeting like this one. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't really matter if we didn't even have church meetings and church like this. As long as you know, we dropped around and had coffee with, with other Christians to express our fellowship and, and invited other people to kind of join us in that kind of friendship. My concern is that the, that approach loses the, the kind of God-centered reality of the heavenlies where we are spiritually. It, it risks taking something of the glory and the honor and the power that, that is due God away from him because his praise stops being the focal point and the reason we gather. If anything, uh, if you were here for 
our series uh, looking earlier in the year at, at church. Uh, if anything, the lasting challenge for me uh, coming from that was thinking about approaching church knowing I'm coming to meet with God. Uh, coming to church knowing it's for him rather than for everything else. You know, it's very tempting to come to church for, I suppose, me to be worried about the pragmatics. You know, will the doors be open? Will someone remember to put the air conditioning on? Uh, you know, will the mess be cleaned up afterwards? Uh, you know, and it's easy for me as well to be tempted to, to focus just on, probably even more so, the people who we'll gather with. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing that person. I'm a bit worried so-and-so wasn't here. I hope they're okay. And they're all good things. But the focal point is coming to give reverence to God. Willingly, actively handing over my thoughts and my actions and any claims I have to power and praise or glory or esteem to him. Since knowing God, the Creator and Saviour, is worth anything, it's worth everything. And we've got to express it when we get here. And secondly and finally, if we've, we've glimpsed this vision of heaven, we need to adopt a lifestyle of subversion. I want you to be Christian subversives. As Creator and Saviour, it's God alone who is worthy of all power, praise, honour, glory, strength. And there are so many things, though, in our world that, that want to take them instead. You know, the joy of these chapters, the, the comfort for the first readers who are under immense pressure is that we don't have to give power and glory and honour to those who are unworthy. Yeah, and we have a special role in society to subvert that kind of idolatry. So Jesus, in, in Revelation 5.10, he purchased people from every tribe, tongue, nation, um, not just so he could put them on the mantelpiece, but rather to be a kingdom and priests to our God. We have a role living here of priestly duty, of representing God to the world. And we do that by, by giving God the worth in everything. You know, true worship in, in John 4, we do it in spirit, not in any building. Uh, and because we're permanently gathered up in the heavenlies, uh, worshipping God, seated with him, all of life becomes worship. Uh, if you want to read more about it, read Romans 12, read Hebrews 13. They're very helpful in seeing worship in all of life. Uh, but one day we do, one way that we do this priestly role uh, is by subverting our culture's dedication to idols, dedication to things that want to take glory away from God. So let me, let me give you one area to start thinking about. Be a subversive worker. Love your colleagues by, by just gently casting doubt on the idolatrous claims work makes on them. Yeah, don't, don't mishear me. Work's really good. I'm pro-work. I think it's great. God's a worker. Uh, but the problem with so many good things in a sinful world is, is they become idols. They become too much of a good thing, so to speak. You know, so work in our society makes a claim uh, on us. You, know, you should do this to make lots of money. That's not right, though. We, we work to do good and please God. A journalist once remarked uh, to Mother Teresa of Calcutta, uh, I wouldn't do what you do for a million dollars. And she replied, neither would I. I do this to serve God and his people. Now, we need to subvert that, that false idol by not letting pay draw our allegiance away to a job rather than to God. You know, work in our society makes, makes a claim to be all about your reputation. You know, make sure that no good work goes unnoticed. But the Bible pushes us, no, no, give glory to God. So Colossians says, work subversively. Work when the boss is not watching. Work for the Lord who's always watching. 
Now, work in our society has this power to, to kind of uh, destroy souls by its futility. You know, that endless cycle of paperwork and emails, you just feel like you're crunching through data, the grind of it all. Uh, but because we can give glory to God in everything, we, we can actually see value in all that. We can break that cycle. We're, we're free then to go to work and speak the kind of conversations that are, that are salted with grace to pick up the language of Colossians 4. Now, I don't think that means you always have to be talking about Jesus and the gospel. It just means speak graciously, speak generously and kindly. You know, the kind of speech that subtly undermines the bitterness and the cynicism and the anger of so many workplaces. Now, I've picked on work, uh, but there are lots of idols that are claiming glory and power and honour that, that they're just not worth. You know, I could have raised money, I could have raised sex or property or the beauty industry or family um, or pleasure or, you know, there are lots of idols. We need to subvert them all. We need to start thinking deeply about what it will mean to give God his worth in a culture that it's, that's curved in on itself. And so maybe there's one idol that you want to start dismantling this week and helping and blessing your colleagues by doing it. So let, once you've grasped Revelation 4 and 5, go and be a Christian subversive. Let's be a priest who, who bless our community by showing that, that they don't have to waste their strength on unworthy idols, but they can give their very best to God. Now, if knowing God is worth anything, it's worth everything. Let's pray we might hold on to that. Lord and Father, we give you great thanks that you are a mighty and worthy God. And that to give you uh, the glory and honour rather than give it to ourselves is a good decision. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to hold in our minds your wonder, that we would see your holiness we would see your great power in creation. That we would delight in the victory that Jesus has already won to purchase us. And that holding on to that we would be for you, our priests in this world, pointing others to give you the glory and honour and power that you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.